Dvornikov and Mishustin, Scenarios and Traitors. Another little grab bag of thoughts about Russia and Ukraine. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. As the missile cruiser Moskva settles on the Black Sea bed, and as we have talk about the start of a new phase of the war in the Donbass, one that will be much more about mechanised warfare and much less about attempts to seize cities, we also have the news of the appointment of a single operational commander for the whole war on the Russian side, General Alexander Dvornikov. And what this means, I think, is is worth dwelling on for a little bit. First of all, though, it's worth also talking about what we could think of as the information warfare around it. I mean, already Dvornikov is being said that he's all known as the butcher of Syria or the butcher of Aleppo for his activities during the Russian intervention in Syria in 2015. Now, look, I'll be honest, I haven't actually heard him described as that. There just seems to be a current trend that whenever you have a Russian commander to describe him as the butcher of somewhere. In some cases, this is actually a fairly ridiculous notion. For example, General Mizintsev, who heads the National Defence Management Centre, was described as the butcher of Mariupol and accused of being directly in charge of the devastating bombardments that blasted civilian held areas. Mizintsev is not in any way an operational commander. He just simply manages the overall structure through which orders are conveyed. It's a little bit like, in my opinion, I mean, unless there's, there's information of which I haven't heard any even hint about, but otherwise it's a little bit like accusing the manager of a telephone switchboard of responsibility for the orders and information that actually is being sent through the lines. So I think in part there is a tendency to precisely try and identify any Russian officer as somehow especially uh, infamous in their reputation. And I mean, first of all, I mean, that's actually obviously an illegitimate part of information warfare and political warfare around it, but is also potentially misleading. Not because I'm sitting here trying to in any way, I don't know, exonerate Dvornikov for what was done in his name and on his orders in Syria, in which he absolutely was responsible for offensives against not just Aleppo, but even before that, Palmyra, in which there were huge amounts of civilian casualties precisely because of the the nature of the the shelling and bombing that, that accompanied it. But rather, I think it's a mistake because it means that we run the risk of misunderstanding what's going on. What Dvornikov did in Syria, he did not because he was some kind of a sociopath, but because he was essentially applying how the Russians fight wars, and and urban combat in particular. Urban combat is hard. You're sending your forces into an exceedingly unforgiving close-quarters environment. It puts much, much more of a stress on the skills, the discipline, the morale of the soldiers in question. And given that those are not necessarily always the uh, great strong points of the Russian military, instead they think, well, it's a lot easier just to stand off and shell and bomb urban areas into rubble and then metaphorically plant your flag on the top. And look, they did this in Grozny in Chechnya. So why should we be surprised if they do it in Aleppo or indeed in Mariupol? So the point is, this is not about Dvornikov. This is about how the Russian way of war is fought. And to over-personalise it, while perfectly understandable for the the media, but might actually make us misunderstand quite what's going on. And so that begs the question, what is going on? Well, 
The appointment of Dvornikov, and let's be honest, it's been long overdue to have a single operational commander instead of multiple competing ones on different fronts. In some ways, this represents the sense that the generals are getting back in control of this war, and they've regained control from the spooks who were behind the initial notion of the Spetsoperatia, the special military operation. And really, they're trying to go back to how the Russians are trained and prepared to fight. Now, Dvornikov himself, on one level, his appointment is pretty straightforward because he was commander of the Southern Military District, and as such, he had been in control of the wartime Southern Joint Forces Command, which was responsible for the, sort of the, the war fighting in the Donbass region, which is, let's face it, you know, one of the more successful fronts. But also it's because he is a man who has something of a reputation for being a relatively imaginative and flexible commander. I mean, he's you know, got a career that is rock-solid, mechanised mechanized infantry with some, with some armour sort of command. But he was sent to Syria as the first military commander when the Russians deployed, precisely because he was considered to be someone who could cope with complex and unexpected military situations, ones in which you can't just simply go back to the, the sort of the metaphorical instructions manual and see what you're meant to do. He found himself in a position in which he was trying quickly to reverse the momentum, which otherwise was, was threatening to rip the Syrian government apart. He had control over a relatively small number of Russian troops, a slightly larger number of Russian mercenaries, the so-called Wagner Group, and effective control over a large number of very, very unreliable Syrian officers and men. And, you know, he essentially did a pretty good job of taking a series of liabilities and minimising them. He needed, for example, a definite victory in, in Palmyra, which is why he was willing to put a lot of resources into that. So, so generally speaking, you know, look, on the one hand, this is a career Russian army officer. So we shouldn't ex expect him either to be uh, a closet humanitarian, but nor to be completely sort of comfortable with out-of-the-box thinking. But within that context, for a Russian of his rank, he is considered to be pretty good. In fact, there was talk that he might be the next chief of the general staff after Gerasimov, who, after all, is not only at 66 or 65, uh, relatively old for a chief of the general staff, but also he's held that position for longer than any other post-Soviet chief of the general staff. Now, the thing is that uh, Dvornikov, he's 60, so he might actually be a little bit old now. But nonetheless, it's a chance, and so presumably much will depend on how successful he is in the coming weeks and months. But it's also the fact that, let's be honest, at the moment, this is probably not deemed to be a good time to be changing the senior commanders. I think the idea had been that Shoigu was going to leave the defence ministry and whoever replaced Shoigu would therefore have the chance to appoint his chosen chief. Well, at the moment, I think everything's frozen, but we shall see. But still, so Dvornikov is, it seems to be, a highly regarded and competent field commander and also an administrative officer, because in a way that's going to be the very first stage. It's going to be regrouping, taking the forces which have been sort of badly chewed by the conflict so far, you know, maybe a quarter of all the battalion tactical groups deployed after all are currently non-operational. They need to be replenished with equipment, with men, with materiel generally. And they have to sort of draw up a plan for some suitable offensive in the Donbass. Now, the idea is, and obviously, again, a lot of newspapers are confidently asserting this, but I don't think we actually have real hard evidence of that, is that for Monday the 9th of May, that's Victory Day, when all the big parades used to go through Moscow and the other main cities, Putin wants to have some kind of a victory. Well, I'm sure he would. Now, if Dvornikov and indeed Gerasimov and Shoigu are worth their uniforms, then they will try and push back against any kind of artificial timetable like this. On the other hand, so far, what we've seen is the generals don't have a pretty good track record of being willing, let alone able, to push back against Putin's whims. So you know, it could well be that basically we will see an offensive launched before then, precisely in the hope of winning some, some 
even if just token and temporary victory that Putin can tout, not, not, not Putin can pout, um, Putin can tout for his Victory Day celebrations. But the key thing is this, I think after taking a real hammering in the early parts of the war, and we, we really must recognise the degree to which you know, the Russians frankly lost the first stage and the Ukrainians deserve full credit for winning it, things are now shifting and with a much, much more limited field of operations, with a better sense of quite what they're up against and with a single unitary command and the chance to actually try and sort of prepare properly, which is a key issue with the first offensive, we shouldn't write the Russians off. And later in the podcast, I'll talk a little bit about scenarios for what might be happening. So that's, I think, what's happening in terms of the the immediate military situation, that having had a bloody nose, the Russians are trying to regroup. And unfortunately, the kind of conflict that we're going to see in the east of Ukraine will quite possibly be more propitious for them. It's more appropriate for the kind of major mechanised warfare operations that they can launch. And you never know, maybe they'll even work out how to actually use their air power properly. We'll see. So that's on the military front. I just wanted to talk briefly about what's going on in the home front, and particularly the economic front. Now, it's quite interesting. When the war first started, and of course, everyone knew that there were going to be sanctions. But I don't think anyone, either in the West or in Russia, appreciated just how quickly, just how extensively, and with what unity they would be. But nonetheless, the first couple of days, it's interesting that the civilian technocrats, shall we say, people from Prime Minister Mishustin on downwards, were actually relatively quiet. And I think in part is because they were totally shocked and stunned by what had happened. Remember, they had been kept out of the loop, and to a large extent, they really found out the same time as us. And therefore, actually, the first public utterances were very much coming from the securocrats, the siloviki of the security interests. And they were talking about the potential for essentially militarising and mobilising the economy to resist sanctions and so forth. However, in fairly quick order, the technocrats managed to regain control over the economic dimension of policy. And I have to confess, look, I, I don't have solid evidence of this, but I do wonder if central bank chair Elvira Nabulina's willingness to, almost eagerness to, proffer her resignation right at the beginning actually may have helped. I mean, as I understand it, at first you had a situation where Anton Vino, the head of the presidential administration, and his first deputy, Kirienko, who was essentially the political technocrat in chief, couldn't even get a virtual meeting with the president in those early days. Maybe it's because he was consumed with the military side of things, or maybe it's because he just didn't want to hear these kind of below-stairs people who, who, let's face it, are there just simply to keep the machine of state running so that he can do the things he wants. He's not really interested in the detail of what they're doing. They didn't want them to come in to, to whine to him about how much harder their job had become. It seems to have been Nabulina's resignation that actually seems to have made him aware of the fact that he needed to talk to these people. And at that point, suddenly, Vino Kirienko and indeed Prime Minister Mishustin got proper access to the boss. And very much that meant that the technocrats were able to take back, at least for the moment, control of economic policy in this current you know, very, very evident crisis. And so Mishustin himself, I mean, he's now, he just very recently uh, presented sort of an anti-crisis package that in, includes a whole variety of measures, things like um, import substitution support. So in other words, things that are sort of sanctioned. The idea is to try and in, you know, encourage Russia's economy to be able to produce them itself. Measures to allow people to import stuff through frankly, covert or grey routes, even without the permission of the patent holders and such like. You know, anything just to try and soften the blow. But there's no question but that it is going to be a massive blow. The prediction is, after all, that Russia's GDP this year will decline by 10 to 15 percent, which is pretty massive. There is a suggestion that unemployment which anyway is likely to grow to 6 to 8, 6 to 9 percent, 
might actually go up as high as between 12 and 13%. And that's a big deal. And particularly because it's going to be especially focused in certain areas, particularly the so-called monotowns, monogorod, um, like uh, Togliatti, for example, which has a huge car and uh, heavy machinery building sort of factory. So these are sort of basically settlements which products of the old gigantomania of Soviet-era planning. Essentially, it's where you have a city which is in, you know, pretty much entirely dependent upon one industry or one major factory. So these are the places which are going to be really sort of focused. And secondly, the, the areas that are generally impoverished. And again, let me just dwell for a moment on the implications of that. If one looks at the poorer sections of the Russian Federation, and particularly actually the North Caucasus, these are both the areas that are most likely to be hit by the economic downturn. They are also the areas which provide a disproportionate share of Russia's soldiers. That's both professionals, because there's a lack of alternative economic opportunities, and also conscripts, because these are the areas which usually have higher birth rates, particularly in the North Caucasus, or at the very least, people who are sufficiently impoverished and lacking in political connections that they aren't able to get their kids out of doing national service. So this is going to be something to watch, I think, for the future. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a slow burn issue, but we might well have a, a confluence of areas which feel the most keenly the economic downturn are also the ones which have more people in the ranks or more people who come out of the ranks having been trained and quite possibly also psychologically scarred by the experience of being war fighters. So that's something to watch. More broadly, I mean, even the economic liberal Alexei Kudrin, who previous finance minister, now head of the accounting chamber, even he was saying, look, it's going to take at least two years for the Russian economy to adapt. And believe it or not, that is an optimistic forecast. The idea that the Russian economy will be able to adapt to the current circumstances is, is actually counts as, as something quite positive. But still, so far, the technocrats are still in the driving seat. The initial suggestions that the economy needs to be sort of turned into, in some ways, a Soviet-style economy has been resisted. But this is going to be, again, a long-term challenge. If the war goes on, and as a result, the sanctions regime is maintained and indeed bit by bit extended. Remember that Europe is looking for ways of weaning itself as quickly as possible off Russian gas. Well, the pressures to essentially shift to a mobilisation economy will be harder and harder to resist. It may well be, for example, that rationing at some point, at least of certain foodstuffs, will have to be brought in. Not because there isn't enough food in Russia, but whether the, the market mechanism can actually ensure that it gets to where it needs to be properly. It may well be that a whole variety of economies in which major Western players did not actually withdrew to withdraw totally, but instead just simply suspended their activities. Well, after a certain point, the pressure will be to, in effect, nationalise them. Already there is a new law that is being proposed by United Russia, which is currently under deliberation in the State Duma, while also measures are being discussed also within the Ministry of Economic Development, precisely to do this, to allow the state to basically say, well, this, this company clearly is either not willing to return to Russia or, or not able to, and therefore we will take its assets under state control and in due course move towards then selling it to Russians. With, I mean, it's worth noting, this is not straightforward expropriation. At the moment, the talk is that the original owner will actually get money back from this sale. But still, the point is kind of, I suppose, to address the fact that Russia can't remain in limbo forever economically. And the idea is it has to start adapting seriously and structurally to the sanctions regime and its new kind of economic cold war with the West. So again, this is something to watch. So far, at least, the technocrats, as I say, are dominant. We haven't had the kind of maximalist measures that some thought, even though there are certain blowhard populists, figures like, like Klichas in the Federation Council, who have been proposing rather more kind of draconian actions. 
not least making it a criminal act for a manager to comply with Western sanctions, which makes it really very difficult for people who will be caught between a hammer and an anvil. So this is what we'll have to see. And in some ways, if one looks at both the Dvornikov situation and the Mishustin situation, what's clear that in both cases you've got this constant struggle between what I'm describing as technocracy versus autocracy. Putin and the people around him, who, let's be honest, tend to be Silovic securocrats, trying to rule by decree and thinking that somehow reality can bend to their political will. And then a whole variety of people who understand to a degree the nuts and bolts of actually how you get things done. Whether we're talking generals, whether we're talking economic managers, whether we're talking political technologists, all of these realising that they cannot at the moment shape national policy and instead are having to do the best they can in the circumstances. And to a considerable degree, although they can't work miracles, but to a considerable degree, their success will be based on how far Putin is willing to let them do their thing. And I think this is going to be one of the interesting points when we sort of assess this with some degree of historical distance, is the degree to which one really can say it was Putin who not only personally enacted policies that were so disastrous for Russia, but also by empowering a certain collection of people who really don't understand anything more than their own narrow and deeply paranoid security worldviews. But it's these people who, having built a state structure, then refused to allow the people who understood that state structure to do their jobs, and that's what brought down this system. We'll have to wait and see, though, whether it really does or how quickly it really does. But nonetheless, that's pretty much my conviction. So let's take a break now and then let me talk about some scenarios for what, what will happen in Ukraine. And also my growing sense that the best prism to understand how Putin looks at this war is his distinction between enemies and traitors. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So a week ago, the Telegraph newspaper published a large piece of mine on essentially four scenarios, because after all, how can we, how can we ever really tell what's going to happen? But, you know, possible scenarios about the way that the war and Ukraine's trajectory may go in the course of the next year. And given that I've had a chance to think more about my various notions, and also because not everyone is able to read what's behind the Telegraph's paywall. I just wanted to revisit that, go through the four scenarios and, and talk a little bit more about them. So if you've already read the article, there may be some little bits and pieces that uh, you, you won't have heard before, but otherwise you might want to skip forward. Anyway, four scenarios. The first one, and I think frankly the most likely one, is that we are in for a, a, a long war, at least in the context of the next months and, and a year. Let's say the Russians do manage to reassert their control over um, their sort of supply lines and their military structures. They could well be able to actually dominate the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine and maintain their control over the littoral, the, the coastline of the Azov Sea, so maintaining their land bridge to Crimea. And that's about it. Then they actually are able to dig in. They have the advantage of being on the defence against Ukrainian attempts to, to retake that territory. But they have learned that beyond the occasional missile and long-range airstrike or artillery, the rest of Ukraine is to a large extent outside of their range and their reach. What this means is that you'll have two increasingly exhausted sides. Now, OK, yes, I'm sure the West will continue to provide material assistance and such like, but the one thing it's not going to provide is more warm bodies for the front line. 
what we could see is something that almost begins to resemble the trench warfare of World War I. Two exhausted sides. From time to time, one or the other manages to muster the will, the men, the materiel for some kind of offensive and take some ground, maybe even a town or two. But then that peters out and in due course, the other side will itself duly manage to launch some kind of a counteroffensive. The battle lines shift back and forth, but nothing in practice changes. Neither side can deliver a knockout blow. That, unfortunately, is at once both the, the least edifying, but also, I think, probably the most likely outcome. Donbass itself will be basically increasingly, in some ways, a little bit like, I would say, German-occupied France, in that there is a certain degree of surface sort of control and order, but also I would expect there to be a very active resistance, which is in turn being dealt with by an exceedingly active and often brutal occupying regime. Meanwhile, in the rest of Ukraine, precisely because this is not a sort of a fixed front line, precisely because of the constant demands of the, uh, you know, the need to be able to not just resist Russian offensives, but also launch their own, you know, there will be this constant drain. And as I said, there's a limit to, frankly, how much the West can and probably will provide. So you know, this, this, is, this is something that is going to be debilitating for, for both countries, even though clearly there will be attempts to sort of essentially shore up the, the Ukrainian economy and such like. But how many of the refugees who have fled are likely to return home in that kind of a context? How many more people will try and leave? The need to feed the meat grinder of the war will probably lead to mobilisation regimes which involve conscription, perhaps even shifting conscription also to women. It, it, it's going to be a hard environment for everyone. So I think the reason I would want to dwell on that is just simply I, I think this is something that I'm not really sensing that the West is thinking about enough. There is a lot of very good thinking, and it has to be noted and commended, about, for example, what kind of military material the Ukrainians need. And that ranges from, I mean, obviously, sort of the, we've already seen the, the steady flow of particularly sort of anti-tank weapons. Now the war looks as if it might be moving into a more kind of conventional, um, heavy mechanised phase. We have seen, for example, the Czechs, and they, they deserve a shout out for this, sending a collection of T-72 tanks, knowing full well that these Soviet-era tanks may be a bit dated, but the point is, Ukrainian tank crews, and most importantly of all, Ukrainian technicians, will be able to use them right away without any degree of a sort of a lag to acclimate themselves to new systems. And we're also getting howitzers being sent and so forth. So, yes, on a, on a military level, I think people are thinking about what does Ukraine need. I think, though, that there is an unwillingness to really accept the reality that this is not likely to end soon. And that there will be the need for a pretty open-ended uh, program, not just to providing military assistance, but also substantial civil assistance in the form of economic support, in the form of reconstruction and so forth. Uh, and people kind of are sort of mentioning that, recognising that. But I, again, may well be that there's big plans out there which I know nothing about. So in which case, please, if you, if you know better do please send me a, an email or a comment or whatever and let me know. But I don't really think that we've got kind of serious game planning for, for example, how does Ukraine cope with winter? Especially because it's possible that the Russians at that point will once again be looking to um, find some ways of attacking Ukrainian uh, power systems, which obviously is, is as much as anything else a cyber issue. And I know that there is support for cyber, but what about just the simple nuts and bolts of making sure that Ukrainians can cope with it with a hard winter? It would please me, it would reassure the Ukrainians if there was some key sense of a particularly European level, EU level plan for that. So that's the long war. Now, the second scenario which, which I posit is the ugly peace. In other words, a, a peace deal does not really satisfy anyone but that Ukraine and Russia feel they have no alternative but to accept, which would presumably involve Russia retaining control of 
Crimea, the bits of the Donbass that were parts of the People's Republic's pseudo-states beforehand, and probably not much else. I mean, I, I could not, for example, see Zelensky or any Ukrainian government being able to turn to the people of Mariupol, who have fought so long and hard for their freedom and for their, you know, to resist the Russian invasion, and tell them that they have one more duty to do to Ukraine, and that is to be surrendered to the Russians in return for peace. So one way or the other, there will be some kind of an ugly peace. Because it will please no one, because there will no doubt still be sanctions on Russia, even if there might be some sanctions relief as a result of this, there will be the constant fear, probably a realistic one, that not only will Russia continue to have enmity towards the new Ukraine, but that it will be constantly waiting and looking for a new opportunity to have another go at redrafting the agreement to its own advantage. In this situation, Ukraine will constantly have to live not just with the, the realisation that it's had a, an, an unpleasant peace forced upon it by circumstance, but also the fact that it continues to be vulnerable. And in some ways, and OK, this is not the, not the worst possible model, but in some ways I think the model is quite likely to be Israel, a country which has its whole identity really based on a sense of vulnerability and a sense of constant threat, that is therefore very much a nation under arms, in which there is democracy, but in some ways a democracy that is constrained by security realities, and yet, above all, which depends on a constant flow of, of foreign support. I mean, that I said, that's, that's not a terrible position for Ukraine to be in. But the point is, there will be the constant overhanging shadow of an angry, bitter and vengeful Russia. But I must admit, I think since, well, both obviously the, the uh, struggle for, for Mariupol, but also in particular the Butcher massacre and no doubt evidence of other similar atrocities elsewhere, I think the idea that these two powers can actually find some kind of, uh, of, of an accord, I think is looking increasingly unlikely to me, but we shall see. The third scenario is essentially that this becomes more of a frozen conflict. So there is no actual formal deal, but the, the battle lines eventually pretty much fix. And just as I suppose through much of the period from 2016 to 2021-22 on the Donbass, yes, there's the occasional artillery duel, there's sniping over the lines, but essentially this is sort of de facto frozen in, in place. Now, that's, again, I mean, not a terrible situation in the moment, it would seem. Certainly not as bad as the sort of the, the current free-for-all war. But on the other hand, it does carry with it the constant threat that what is frozen could easily defrost. And again, I think for, for Ukraine, there will be this constant sense that this is a, a pause rather than an end. So Ukraine is likely to, again, sort of to follow the Israel route or maybe follow the route of West Germany, which is actually one in which, you know, obviously it, it has a chance to, to really sort of rebuild itself economically. But of course, West Germany could do that precisely because of the presence of NATO forces. That's what stopped it from just simply being reincorporated into a Soviet-controlled Germany. And this is one of the interesting questions. Could we actually see... In the context of a ramping down of active military operations, Western forces moving into Ukraine. And I think it's not entirely impossible, not necessarily under the NATO banner, but rather one of these coalitions of the willing, of individual countries that come together and are willing to do so. Some, obviously, the Russians would portray as the Russophobic axis, like the Poles and the Balts and others that just tend to feel that this is something necessary. So one could see, for example, limited deployments, particularly in cities in the west of Ukraine, maybe even in Kiev, not with an eye to being able to actually fight off a Russian invasion, but rather as tripwire forces, as symbolic ones, to more or less say, if you, for example, do bombard Kiev there is a possibility that you will actually now kill NATO soldiers with all the consequences that may be. So actually, a frozen conflict may 
in some ways, ironically, open up the route, the opportunity for some kind of a Western security presence in Ukraine, or at least in central and eastern Ukraine. I don't think they'd be anywhere near the actual sort of borderline. Further proof of the extent to which actually Putin is doing an astonishing job of ensuring that all the things he seems to have feared the most, from Sweden and Finland joining NATO to the presence of NATO troops in Ukraine, have been made much, much more likely precisely by his actions. There you go. How's that for the usual historical ironies? But what will happen on the other side of the line of contact? Well, occupied uh, Donbass, in some ways, it also has two models, though not necessarily quite so pleasant. The worst case model is it becomes somewhere like Chechnya. Chechnya, shortly after the successful reimposition of federal power in the Second Chechen War. So in other words, filtration camps in which young men in particular are pushed through to sort of make sure, you know, do they have telltale bruises on their shoulders that suggest they've been firing an assault rifle? Do they have tattoos that suggest that they are supporters of strong Ukrainian nationalist groups? All that kind of thing. A fairly uh, free-for-all security regime in which the National Guard, or worse yet, actually, actual Chechen forces, you know, kick down doors whenever they suspect anything is going on. So, you know, it could be a very violent and unpleasant place indeed. Or, at best, it could be a bit like Transnistria, this little sort of breakaway region of Moldova. Kind of little, almost slice of Soviet nostalgia. Shabby, impoverished, but at least kind of relatively stable. I mean, that is, I think, the best possible scenario I could imagine for Russian-held areas of Ukraine. But look, we always have to have hope. And the fourth scenario I provided was that there was peace, a proper peace, which involved a Russian withdrawal from, certainly from the Donbass, probably not from Crimea. But even there, there would have to be, you know, there could be some kind of face-saving deal, maybe a sort of promise that in, I don't know, five years' time or ten years' time, there will be a proper referendum on whether Crimea stays Russian or returns to Ukraine under real serious international supervision, something like that. But of course, this can't happen while Putin is in the Kremlin. I think we have to acknowledge the degree to which now Putin is so deeply steeped in blood and also that his whole political career is now um, essentially sort of connected inextricably with some kind of sense of victory in, in Ukraine. That he cannot back down, not to that degree, and nor frankly could we accept a Russia still with Putin at the helm as kind of once again part of the sort of civilised community. So this would actually have to involve... Putin having been ousted from the Kremlin, whether it's by mortality, and obviously there's all these, these rumours about, about his illnesses and such like, or whether it's the even less probable opportunity of a sort of palace coup, which could happen, but I don't think it'll happen for some time. It is interesting, though, that there is a little bit more discussion of what happened in 1962 in the city of Novocherkask. Now, Novocherkask was essentially a, a grimy second or third rank industrial city in Soviet Russia. And it was just by ill-fated chance that on the very same day that an increase in food prices was announced, that there was also an, an announcement that peace rate norms and thus, in effect, salaries at the local factory, and again, this, this was very much one of these monotowns, but at the local factory were being cut. So wages down, prices up. As you wouldn't be surprised to hear, there was some disgruntlement that led to a protest. The police, the local police, refused to put the protest down. The protest became a strike. The strike became a demonstration. The local military garrison was called on. It too refused forcibly to disperse the protesters. In due course, it was the KGB and interior troops that were sent in. They had much less compunction. They were willing to use force, people died, and everything was dealt with. However, although they were able to control this, and let's be honest, Novichokask pretty much disappeared from view, in a way, in Soviet official parlance. It was no longer being discussed in the, in the papers or anything like that for a while. 
The people who were arrested were deliberately scattered around the Soviet uh, penal system precisely so that they, they couldn't sort of form some, some kind of critical mass and tell people what was going on. But nonetheless, the elite knew. And what was really scary for them was precisely that there was nothing special about Novocherkask. It was any town USSR. And if it could happen there, then there was this fear that it could happen anywhere. And this very much, I think, proved one of the sort of crucial driving factors that led in due course to the ousting of Nikita Khrushchev as a man who it was felt had become too dangerous for the elite as a whole. And thus the elite as a whole united to get rid of him. The KGB, the military, the party leadership and so forth. Now, the Novocherkas model, I think, is important because precisely it, it demonstrates how, for all the internal control structures, nonetheless, that an elite can, when it feels that it needs to for its own survival, turn against a leader. Now, there are limits. I mean, one of the key things about getting rid of Khrushchev was that there was a very powerful Communist Party structure, which in some ways provided the sort of the rules and the mechanisms for, for getting rid of him. That doesn't really apply anywhere near as neatly for, for Putin. But still, it's not impossible that if we have some kind of black swan events that sort of put an unbearable stress upon the system, or just simply if the technocrats are unable or unwilling or not allowed to do what needs to be done, and the economy, the, sort of the growing crisis within the economy, and let's face it, the crisis is inescapable, but that that begins to lead to serious threat of internal unrest. You know, who knows what that could do? So anyway, let's, suggest, let's say that one way or the other, Putin has been ousted. Now look, it is not as though peace and light and universal hippiness will suddenly descend upon the world. Putin will be replaced by people who are, well, essentially, or were, until very recently, Putinists, in word if not in soul. And therefore... They will be very pragmatic in what they do. But the point is, they will presumably be in a position to blame Putin for everything that went wrong. And to a degree, the West will likely be willing to go along with that particular fantasy. You know, it's unlikely that this new regime will be able to surrender lots of figures to go to war crimes tribunals in The Hague or anything like that. It's unlikely that we will see all sanctions lifted. But nonetheless there could well be some kind of resolution which certainly sees the Russians handing back the uh, People's Republics, withdrawing troops, maybe even paying reparations, although I suspect any such payment will rather be in the form of, I don't know, cheap energy supplies or, or the like, rather than actual cash on the nail, because the new Russia won't have that much cash on the nail. But it is possible to kind of imagine some kind of, of peace. But as I say, the problem is this. Any such positive scenario requires the disposal in one form or another of Putin, and that is still very much something that uh, it's impossible to predict. And speaking of Putin, for the final point, it was something I was thinking about how to understand not just how terrible things are happening uh, actually on the battlefield, but the extraordinary vitriol and venom that Putin is devoting to the Ukrainians. And the fact that we see, I mean, you know, if, if one looks at Bucha, for example, now, as I said, I, I don't actually think that this was something that the Kremlin had, had mandated. I think it was a failure of discipline with a, a scared, badly led and indeed angry um, military force could well be also, as some have suggested, that it suggests also, or rather resulted also, from the presence of some specific non-military elements, such as the Wagner mercenaries, or Chechens, or, as some have suggested, the uh, neo-Nazi mercenary group called Rusic. I talk about this briefly in a short article for The Spectator that I'll, I'll link in the programme notes. But more broadly... I was thinking back to this now sort of infamous anecdote recounted by Venediktov of Echo Moskvi, in which Putin was just expounding to him the difference between enemies and traitors. Enemies, you see, you fight against to the best of your will, but you are aware of that hopefully at some point you'll be able to reach some kind of understanding with them. There will be a peace. 
Traitors, on the other hand, nah, nah. Traitors, you can do nothing with traitors except eliminate them because you'll never, ever be able to trust them. And we've seen this crop up in other ways. That, uh, For example, the, the reason why the Russians were willing to use such extreme measures against people like Litvinenko and Skripal in the UK, despite the international implications, was precisely that these were traitors. Navalny himself, for, for, lo, for so long he had been tolerated for essentially pragmatic reasons, but also because of a sense that, that he was an enemy. I think that, and I don't believe there's any truth in this, but I, I think this is how it was believed, I think the reason why the Kremlin decided to, that he had to be killed was precisely because they, they came to believe their own uh, narrative. They came to believe that he was knowingly or unknowingly not just an opposition figure, but actually a subversive element of Western attempts to undermine the Russian state. And that's when he therefore became a traitor, and that's why he was therefore open to being poisoned or obviously now kept indefinitely in prison. And generally, we now see this kind of uh, narrative emerging more broadly, as Putin has made it clear in his various speeches that there is no more middle ground. There is no more room for loyal opposition. It's a very, very Manichaean situation in which you are either a patriot or you are a traitor. And it doesn't matter if you're an ordinary Russian or if you're an oligarch. You know, he said, I, 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 don't, I don't care if you like oysters and caviar and whatever, so long as you do what is required for the motherland. So this whole notion of dividing the world, or at least the Ruskimir, between patriots and traitors, I think, is becoming increasingly important, not just simply as a political instrument of control, but also as Putin's whole underlying world vision. And here's the thing. In Putin's mind, we must remember, in Putin's mind, Ukrainians are not a real people any more than Ukraine is a real state. They are, I don't know, younger brothers, first cousins, whatever. But one way or the other, the idea is that they are part of, shall we say, the Russian family, just as the Belarusians are, and they owe a degree of loyalty and allegiance to the paterfamilias, which is Moscow, and thus, by definition, it is Putin. And this is the thing. That means that the Ukrainians, by resisting, not just resisting in the context of the war, but by their, their whole resistance to being part of Russia's sphere of influence, by turning to the European Union in 2013-2014, and more recently, by more broadly turning not just to the West, but to NATO, the Ukrainians have demonstrated that they are traitors. And again, this is like, say, the Chechens, who may not, may not have been ethnic Russians, but were Russian citizens, and that's why the Chechens, compared with, say, the Georgians, were treated that much more brutally. The Georgians, they were just enemies. The Chechens, the Ukrainians, they're traitors. And I think this is something that we really need to come to terms with, the degree to which, therefore, this is a very, very emotional and fundamental worldview-related issue for Putin. Now, again... When I say come to terms with, it's not that I'm saying in any way we therefore need to make concessions to it, but I just think in terms of as we try to understand Putin's red lines, what is really driving this conflict? It is this very, very emotional sense that the, the Ukrainians, those dang Ukrainians, did done him wrong, and that they have to pay for that. And yes, this doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to turn around and tell his troops to go kill and rape. But on the other hand, it is certainly the case that there seems to be very, very little evidence of any attempt to stop that. And here's a little sideline point. In 2014, the Russians set up a proper military police force for the first time. And in other words, this is a force that is there to police the military. Now, there was a tale that uh, one particular military police colonel was killed in Ukraine. But apart from that, I have really been very, very struck by the absence of military police officers in any kind of footage of casualties or of soldiers in the field or anything like that. They have a specialised force which is precisely meant to be there to ensure that military law and military discipline are upheld. Where on earth are they? 
they don't seem to be anywhere. They certainly are not doing their job in terms of reining in the worst excesses of, of, of the Russian soldiery. That kind of thing is in part a reflection of the fact that this is a fairly brutal military structure, but it also reflects the degree to which it is clear that coming from the top, there is a sense that the Ukrainians need to pay. They need to pay for their temerity. They need to tr pay for being traitors. And this is why it's going to get ugly, because Putin has no interest in, in reining in the worst excesses of his own men, and they in turn are scared. They also feel that precisely they have no constraints upon them, and therefore why should they do anything otherwise? It's one thing to call Dvornikov the you know, butcher of Aleppo or the butcher of Syria. I am honestly much, much less concerned about any one senior military commander than I am about the, the untamed passions of a whole bunch of 20 and 30-somethings hopped up, sleep-deprived, given guns, and who are encouraged to think that the Ukrainians, frankly, deserve whatever comes to them. It's an ugly situation. And I wish I had a more positive way to end, but there really isn't anything more positive to say about this point. So instead, I will just stop. And as ever, thank you very much indeed for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мной.